Bud Light presents Real American Heroes. Real American Heroes. Today, we salute you, Mr. Outside the Stadium Peanut Seller. Mr. Outside the Stadium Peanut Seller. You stand like a sentry outside the grounds of our national pastime, offering us your salty nuts. Nice and crunchy. Half price on the outside, all the taste. That's your pitch. There's nothing like spending a summer day on a hard bleacher seat, crunching your nuts. Unless maybe it's sitting behind home plate, spreading mustard on your wiener. So crack open an ice cold Bud Light, Mr. Outside the Stadium Peanut Seller, because thanks to you, a bag of peanuts costs just peanuts. Bud Light beer at Isaac it's the baseball team here. Charge us to watch them. When they, when they should pay fans. Um, yeah, well, uh, you know, at least you have a team you want to root for. I live in uh, New York City, and I, and there's the New York Yankees, and the level, no. Uh, you know, really, seriously, if this wasn't being live-streamed throughout the world, I'd just show a little, just the, the head of my dick, and say, kiss it. Because that's, fuck you. Fuck you and the, yeah, Yankees. Oh, good. Root for the Yankees. Yeah? Yeah, root for, why don't you, and while you're at it, root for Exxon to raise the price of gas. I'm a fan of the Baltimore Orioles. Okay, and um, yeah, boy, he heard the response to them, and that's a pretty sh- kind of a. But we they make it certainly more interesting than the San Diego Padres, who really, whew, wow, you guys, we're, we're a lot of the guys are playing with two gloves at a time. It's really interesting, but the Yankee fans, fuck you. Um, you, then you've never been to this. Have you been to the stadium? You like paying the fucking price to watch a fucking game there? Yeah, oh yeah, $75, $110, yeah, for a baseball game, asshole, a baseball game, they used to cost 20 bucks, so you can see Big Chumpy Chump and Farty Bobo and Snacky Fit Fuck, go to hell, it's bullshit, you know, I mean seriously, god damn it, they're obnoxious, they've always been obnoxious, they had a great stadium, a really great stadium. And then they said, no, we can't make enough money at our great stadium. We're going to make a great stadium where you can go, and if you pay a ton of fucking money, you can get even a better seat, and you go in and eat sushi at a fucking ballpark. <laughs> 750 bucks for those seats and all the sushi you can eat. Son of a bitch. Good luck. Have a great season. Enjoy every minute of it. When you get that much talent, watch what happens. Oh, boy, he just got a little gimpy uh, hamstring there. He's down, he's down, he's down. Good luck. Fuck you. See, you're better off with the Padres. They suck. But at least you're not rooting for fascism. We got a billion things about that, too. How can you equate the Yankees to fascism? Because I'm an Orioles fan. 
That's how. I'm going to get fucked. They're going to take two of my players. I know they're going to get at least one. God damn it. Says the, Mike says the Pittsburgh Pirates suck. The owner is a greedy bastard. Won't spend money to win. And to at least be competitive. But it's a great, it's a great fucking ballpark. And then, much like, and that reads much like I could substitute the Baltimore Orioles, who suck, and the owner is, and I, I don't even know if he's greedy, he's just fucking dumb, as opposed. We have one of the great stadiums, you could fucking, as a matter of fact, uh, you could take a, a family of 14 there, uh, and live there for a week, and see nine games, and it would be cheaper than seeing one game at Yankee Stadium. Uh, but, so when you feel, I'm serious, when you feel shitty about your fucking team, now that I know I can watch you guys and feel a little better about my shitty team, watch the Orioles. I'm serious. They fucking blow. It's absolutely horrifying. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki, half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, sealed down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio bonus show that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's good, you freaks? Surprise, Seamans! That's what happens when you pick up random rocks, folks. A snake might jump out from under and bite you. Want to welcome all of you into my dojo for this bonus pod extravaganza as the baseball season is now rounding third and headed into the second half. I got the Orioles and the Marlins on. It's one to one in the top of the third. And I got a message from one of my uh, loyal listeners this week, Travis, out of Amherst, Wisconsin. And he writes, I love the podcast. I really love when you do two in a week. Can we get some more of those? Waiting seven days is so long. And brother, thank you. I'm feeling the love, kid. Okay, so here's the deal, Travis. 
This is the third consecutive month I've dropped a bonus show. And my plan was to at least do one bonus pod a month during the rest of the uh, season this year. Now, I'm playing things a little closer to the vest these days. I, I do have some things that my amassing staff and myself are working on behind the scenes. Some really exciting stuff. And I'm always looking for ways to raise the platform, the show, the profile, the base, etc., etc. So... With that being said, my goal is to get to the point where I'm at least putting out three shows a week within the next, you know, three years. Now, some things have to go our way for me to accomplish this, but the metrics are telling me that this is in fact possible. And with the rabid fan base, you know, fans like yourself in the crowd, I'm motivated to keep this train rolling. The big question with me is always going to be health more than anything. Uh, I'm not a very healthy person, as you can probably tell from my voice, and there have been times when it has impacted my performance, and and I don't do a lot of posts at it, I don't talk about it, I'm one take snake, good or bad, just like a real radio show, but look, for the most part, I feel good right now. I've learned how to adapt and perform, the show continues to grow, the last two months have been our biggest ever And to your point, Travis, I think the bonus shows have enhanced the catalog and downloads. So, yes, I do plan on having at least one bonus show a month to at least the end of the season. And I'm always focused on the long-term vision that includes, you know, multiple shows a week. So, hang in there, brother. Keep sharing with CMED friends and emphasize the stars and comments. Hang tight. I'm intent on uh, matching your passion for this show. I think you and I have mirroring expectations for the future. A backwards gay bod. But since you ask, I do have a bonus pod today about one of the most fascinating stories in baseball history. So, this one is for you, Travis. Thank you again for the line, and I promise to always reward you with free baseball content as fast as I can get it to you. And I want you to know, I'm definitely working towards more than, you know, one show during the week. You know, we're just not quite there yet, in all transparency. But, today, we're going to dive into the deep waters of the life and times of Eddie Wakis. And, I can hear many of you right now, like, who? Eddie Wakis is the player that inspired author Bernard Malamud to write his iconic novel, The Natural, which was published in 1952 and was later immortalized loosely on the big screen in 1984 by actor Robert Redford. And here, let me tell you all about it. If I could clear this platform, say goodbye to your loved ones as I call all aboard... And let's load up our BKP time travel chucho as I set the time and destination for his birth on September 4th, 1919, Cambridge, Massachusetts, so we can follow this amazing cautionary tale. Come on in, grab a seat, open your kimonos, and let me give you a little backstory on the way as we bend baseball space and time to our will. Who was Eddie Wakis? Well, that's quite a question there. Uh, Ah! Eddie was a (laughs) slick fielding first baseman 
who played for three big league teams. He had a solid 285 average as a batter. He only struck out 204 times and 4,681 plate appearances in his 11-year career. Now, he was a fine ball player. But most OGs who may have a recollection of him remember him for what happened to him more than his on-the-diamond exploits. On June 14th, 1949, in a room at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago, he would be lured into another room by an obsessed female fan named Ruth Steinhagen. And she would shoot the ball player in his chest, critically wounding him. And more on this to come, but here we are, September 19th, 1919. Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Eddie has just been born to parents Veronica and Stephen Wakis. Uh, the parents were immigrants from Lithuania who met and fell in love on their passage across the Atlantic Ocean and route to America. Eddie, his parents, and eventually his younger sister Stella, uh, they would grow up in a modern, uh, modest flat in East Cambridge. He first fell in love with the game of baseball at nearby Cambridge Field. And it was just a block from his house. He was a natural right-hander, and he enjoyed pitching. For many of those years learning the game, you know, when he's first learning it, Wakens played barehanded. He couldn't afford a glove. So when Eddie, Eddie was eight years old, 1928, his father, who was by now chasing the American dream, has settled in as the neighborhood butcher, identified his son's love for baseball, and he wanted to support him. Back in Lithuania, Stephen was an accomplished swimmer, but he really knows nothing about baseball other than his son really loves the game. So in his love and support for his son, he buys the boy his first baseball glove. And Eddie is thrilled. He has his very own baseball glove. He is so thrilled, in fact, that he doesn't have the heart to tell his father that the glove is a left-handed first baseman's mitt. Instead of pissing and moaning over his father's faux pas, Eddie accepts the gift with gratitude and teaches himself how to throw left-handed and play first base. While at Cambridge Field learning the game, he meets Jack Burns, a former veteran of seven seasons with the St. Louis Browns and the Detroit Tigers, Burns' career was winding down in the MLB when they met in 1936, and he would take the junior in high school under his wing. At the age of 14, Eddie's mother dies of pneumonia, and it is a depressing time in young Eddie's life. Despite the tragedy, Wakis goes on to be an honor student at Cambridge Latin High School. He studies foreign languages. He was a talented debater, and he graduated sixth in a class of 600. His sophomore year, he walks into the uh, school's baseball practice with his trusty offhand glove his dad gave him, only to hear the coach tell him the team already had a first baseman. So, the disappointed Wakens, he asked the coach if he could just take some grounders at first with the team. And after scooping up, every grounder hit his way, the coach tells him, Grab it back. Take some hacks. And Eddie proceeds to smack line drives all over the park. And the coach informs him that he is now the new first baseman for Cambridge Latin. 
By the time he graduates with honors, Eddie is also a legend on the diamond. He bats 600 in senior year. That includes a three-run dong that landed on the roof of a three-story apartment building beyond the right field wall, and it is still considered the longest blast in school history. He was named to every single all-scholastics team in, Bo- in the Boston area in 1937, and he begins playing semi-pro baseball for the Suburban Twilight League. He was offered scholarships to play baseball at Harvard, Holy Cross, and Duke in 1938, but he opts to play for money in the main league for the Warumbo Indians in Lisbon Falls. And Wakus is an instant star. As he becomes the top prospect in New England that summer, and he leads his team to a main championship. And they qualify for the National Baseball Congress Tournament, which was the precursor to the College World Series in Wichita, Kansas. Wakus hits over 500 in the tournament, plays flawless defense, and he leads the team two wins before being eliminated. And after the tournament, the young first baseman was named by Major League Scouts to the All-American Semi-Pro Team. Boston sports writer of the day, Fred Barry, proved to be prescient when he writes, the wise big league men who observed the 19-year-old Wakis termed him the natural. The high school beat writer for the Boston Herald, Ralph Wheeler, he had connections with the Chicago Cubs, and he arranged for Eddie to try out with Cubs manager Gabby Hartnett. Uh, during the, you know, that's during the last road trip to Fenway to, uh, when they're playing the Bees, the Boston Bees back in those days. And Gabby was impressed with what he saw. Wakis, uh, he decides to sign him. He gives him a $2,000 signing bonus. And then he assigns him to the Moline Plowboys on the Class B 3I League for the 1939 season. And to give you a little perspective here, two grand in 1939 is worth about $44,000 today in the 2023 economy. He has little trouble adjusting adjusting to night games. uh, And after his first eight weeks, he's batting a mediocre 189. But then he begins to fire on all cylinders and he finishes with a 326 batting average and a dozen triples. The team finishes in seventh place, but Eddie is a 20-year-old phenom, and he makes the league all-star team. Soon thereafter, he is promoted to the Tulsa Oilers of the Class A Texas League in 1940. He bats 302 in 162 games, and he leads the competitive league in hits that year with 192. Now, that same year, Cards ace, future Hall of Fame pitcher, Dizzy Dean. He's rehabbing a sore arm with the Oilers that summer. And I had touched on this Oilers stint here for Dizzy and the Gas House Gang pod from last year. Dizzy wound up as Eddie's roommate here in 1940, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And you might think to yourself that the 30-year-old Southern boy Dizzy and the 20-year-old kid from Beantown, would have very little in common. But the two became fast friends, and their union would continue throughout their lifetimes, as Dizzy was always a huge proponent of Wakens' play. In 1941, the Cubbies invited Eddie to Catalina Island for spring training, and with Dizzy singing his superlatives. 
Wankus doesn't disappoint. He makes an impact in the camp immediately, and he makes the opening day roster for Chicago on April 15, 1941. He makes his MLB debut at Wrigley Field on a cold, blustery, windy day, of course. He starts at first base. He goes one for four as the Cubs beat the Buccos seven to four. But both the Cubs and Wakus would struggle that year out the gate as the Northsiders settled into the second division and Eddie slumps badly. He's guarding only four singles and 21 at-bats in the first month. And this is in part-time duty. In the middle of May, Chicago returns him to the Oilers where he refines his stroke enough to finish with a 293 average in 125 games. The Cubs then ship him out to the PCL, the Pacific Coast League, in 1942 to play for the Los Angeles Angels. This time, he meets the challenge of the better competition, bats uh, 336 to finish third in the league batting race. He led the PSL, uh, PCL with 235 hits for the season, and the team finished in second as they blew a four-game lead over the Sacramento Salons in the last five days to finish the season in second place. During his stint with the Angels in 1942, Wakus gets his first taste of Hollywood when he appears in several action scenes batting and playing first base in the pride of the Yankees, starring Gary Cooper as Lou Gehrig. And it appeared as though Eddie was on the fast track back to the Cubs, but... Now, fucking Hitler had to go and start up with his bullshit, bring the planet into World War II. And like most ballplayers of that era, the war intervened on his career, and Eddie is now in Fort Devens, Massachusetts, for Army basic training. He was then assigned to the 544th Engineering Boat and Shore Regiment. On May 2nd, 1941, or 44, he is shipped overseas to serve his duty in Oro Bay, New Guinea. And over the next 17 months, Wakus would see heavy combat. And, in fact, he barely escaped being taken prisoner by the Japanese army while serving in the Philippines. After Manila was secured, he and his company were ordered to repair Rizal Stadium, where over 30,000 American GIs would be housed. In September of 1945, while the Cubs are on the verge of winning the NL pennant, he and the rest of the 544th were among the first troops invading Wakayama, Japan. He would finish his tour with 10 Meritus Service Awards, including four Bronze Stars and four Overseas Bars. In 1946, he returns to Catalina Island for the Cubs as a 26-year-old battle-scarred vet of foreign wars after 34 months of service for the country. But, yeah, there's a problem. Bill Cabaretta is the new base, uh, first baseman for the Northsiders, and he's coming off a 355 batting championship title and uh, NL MVP award the year before. When Wakus arrives to camp, Manager Charlie Grimm, who was a slick-fielding first baseman in his day as well, he tells Eddie, grab his glove, take some grounders at first. And for 15 minutes, Grimm hits shot after shot at Eddie. And tries he might to get a grounder past him, Eddie was just all over anything hitting his direction. Now one ball got past him, 
And before long, Grimm, in his mind, has already acknowledged that Wakis would make the team. But he's also beginning to wonder, where the hell are we going to move Cabaretta to make room for Eddie's leather at first? Once the season began, Cubs right fielder Bill Nicholson, he continues his slump from the year before. And on April 25th, manager Grimm benches Nicholson, moves Cabaretti to right field in his stead, and asserts Wakers at first base. Bats him six in the lineup. Eddie hits two singles, a double, he drives in two runs. And that's his first game as a starter. By mid-June, he's batting 310 with gold glove caliber defense. On June 23rd, 1946, he and fellow Cubs rookie Marv Rickard hit back-to-back dongs at Polo Grounds versus the Giants, becoming the first duo to accomplish the feat in that Giants quirky stadium. Uh, the team ends in third place, 14 and a half games behind the pennant-winning cards, but Wakus is, well, he's a natural. He bats 304. The best average on the team and the only Cubby to bat over 300. In 106 games, he commits only four errors for a 996 building percentage. The baseball scribes elect him as the National League Rookie of the Year ahead of Del Ennis of the Phillies. And he even finished 13th in balloting for the NL MVP award. In 1947, while fully entrenched at first base, Winkus battles injuries early on, but he still manages to hit 292 on a team that has now slipped to sixth place. Winkins and two other bachelors, Rickard, pitcher Russ Meyer, they enjoyed the Chicago summer nightlife, you know, which was, you know, it was apropos because, you know, the Cubs, they only played day games back then. So they got to hang out all night in Chicago and make the city theirs. Eddie was known as a sharp dresser, and the ladies were absolutely crazy about him. And even though Wakus turns in another solid season of stats in 1948, he's hitting 295, the Cubs continued their downward slide, finishing in last place with a 64-90 record. Eddie is named to his first National League All-Star team to back up slugging first baseman Johnny Moss. He is credited with a walk in the game and his only played appearance when he pitch hits for pitcher Johnny Sane in the sixth inning. Upon completion of the 1948 season, the Cubs are sellers, looking to get Young to resurrect that franchise. They find a willing partner in Phillies who were under new ownership and trying to make an off-season splash to turn the team into a contender. At the winter meetings in December, the two teams pull off the blockbuster deal of the off-season when the Cubs send Wakus and pitcher Hank Bowery to Filthy in exchange for pitchers Dutch Leonard and Walt Dubiel. Rogers Hornsby. The outspoken Cubs manager, he was annoyed with the deal, wondering aloud why in the world the Cubs would trade the best first baseman in the business. The Phils would be rewarded with a key component of the 1950 Wiz Kids of Filthy that will eventually win the NL pennant. Wakus, well, he was thrilled by the move, mostly because he would be rejoining his former teammates, Russ Meyer and Bill Nicholson. The trade for Eddie, it paid immediate dividends for Filthy as the club burned it with the uh, first division for much of the 1949 season. 
By the 1st of May, he's batting over 300, and his teammates have nicknamed, nicknamed him the Fred Astaire of first base because of his nimble footwork and his impeccable grace defensively. And Eddie, he loved the Philly nightlife as much as he loved it in Chicago, particularly hanging with Myers and Nicholson again, who he roomed with while on the road. So on June 14, 1949, Russ Myers spins a complete game 9-2 victory over the Cubs out at Wrigley to start a 15-day road trip. And on this day, Wakens is batting 306, and he's uh, the leading vote-getter in all-star balloting at first base for the National League. That evening, with the win under their belt, Wakens, Meyer, Nicholson, they decide to enjoy the evening back in the shy and blow up a little steam together. Russ Meyer's parents and his fiance Mary, they uh, accompany the ballplayers to dinner. And at dinner, Eddie and Nicholson leave Meyer and his family and split the fare on a cab back to Edgewater Beach Hotel, where the Phillies are staying. So, when they arrive at the hotel, Eddie suggests to Nicholson maybe he should go to the beach walk, find Meyer, and ask him if he wants to enjoy a nightcap with his two teammates. Nicholson agrees, and off he goes. As Wakis watches his friend and teammate disappear into the North Chicago evening, a bellhop stands next to him, and he tugs on his arm. And he tells the ball player he has a message from a girl in the mailbox at the front desk. He goes to retrieve the notes, and as he's walking through the, ro- the lobby, he begins to read it. The girl identifies herself as Ruth Ann Burns, with her room number 1297A circled. And it reads... It's extremely important that you that I see you as soon as possible. We're not acquainted, but I have something of an importance to speak to you about. I think it would be to your advantage to let me explain it to you. Please come up to my room soon, and I won't take much of your time. So, Wakens returns to the front desk, and he asks who the room was registered to. The clerk tells him Ruth Ann Burns from Portland Street in Boston. And the answer, it made Eddie a little uneasy, as he had grown up on Portland Street in East Cambridge. A confused Eddie, he searches out and eventually finds Nicholson and Meyer sipping on drinks. He tells his friends about the strange note, and he deduces that maybe she is a family acquaintance from the hood and and in need of help. He calls her room first. And it seems to him that maybe she, you know, he had awakened her, but she urges him to come up. She's very cryptic, only saying that it was in his best interest to show up. Now, at around 11.30 p.m., Eddie knocks on the door of 1297A. Ruth Ann opens the door, and she asks him to come in. Wakens enters the tiny room, he walks past her, and he sits in an armchair by the window. The girl, whose real name was Ruth Ann Steinhagen, was not from his hometown of Cambridge. She was from Chicago. So, as Wakens makes himself comfortable in the chair, Ruth Ann Steinhagen shuts the door and turns around brandishing a twenty-two caliber pistol. And she looks at Eddie and she says, I have a surprise for you. 
You're not going to bother me ever again. Waitress is shocked and terrified. Looking at this girl now aiming a gun at him. And he says, what goes on here? Is this some kind of joke? But she ain't joking. She looks to Billy's first baseman in the eyes. She doesn't say a word. Instead, she answered by shooting Wakus in the stomach. Eddie goes into immediate shock, and he is still confused about his encounter with this woman. He begins to slump over in the chair as the painful reality is settling in on him. And he begins to mutter, oh, baby, why, why'd you do that? Why? What did I do to you? Why? Why? Eddie falls on the floor. He rolls over on his back, clutching his abdomen. And Ruth Ann is not convinced that she shot him at first. She walks up to Eddie's body. She points the gun at him as Winkus is looking up at her. She then quietly steps over the major league player, puts the gun in her closet, picks up the phone, calmly calls the front desk, and tells them she has just shot a man in her hotel room. And folks, the phone call from her it probably saved Winkus' life. The front desk immediately called the paramedics and sent a security force up to the room to assess the situation. When they get to the room, they find out that not only has someone been shot in the hotel, but that somebody is Eddie Wakeus, star first baseman for the Philadelphia Phillies. And Eddie's in a bad way. He's struggling to breathe. He's turning colors. Where's that goddamn ambulance? We're losing him. Meanwhile, the female psychopath, she's just watching on, almost with a vindicated look of satisfaction on her face seemingly oblivious to the chaos she has created and eventually the paramedics arrive on the scene they quickly place the dying man on a gurney they load him in the back of the ambulance and they begin racing their way through the Chicago streets and route to the hospital eventually the ambulance shows up and the paramedics and hotel security quickly get him uh, into the vehicle And on his way to Illinois Masonic Hospital, it is determined that the bullet has pierced Wakeus' lung and is now lodged close to the spine. He would undergo two operations at Masonic before being transferred to Billings Memorial Hospital on the campus of Chicago University where he had a third operation. And while there, he developed a persistent fever and it was determined that he would need a fourth operation to remove that bullet. Scary, scary stuff, man. Real story. How did none of us know this freaking story, right? Scary stuff. So, after being indicted for attempted murder, Ruth Ann Steinhagen was declared mentally ill and she was committed to the Kanaki State Hospital. She had been assessed with Wakens since the first time she ever saw him play back in 1947 for her beloved Cubbies. And although she had never met him before that crazy night, she would often wait outside the clubhouse when she went to games just to quietly watch him. And she was annoyed by the Cubs' decision to trade him. She could not bear to see him go on in Philly's gear. And she made the decision 
soon after the trade to hunt him down and shoot him. Uh, you know, and she would say, "I if I can't have any wakers, no one can have any wakers." When the police searched her home, they found a creepy, obsessive shrine to Eddie in her bedroom, and Eddie's recovery was. It was almost miraculous. He spent a month in the hospital before flying home on July 17th with over 500 Phillies fans braving the pouring rain to meet him at the airport. And look, folks, I think this is where I'm going to break on this bonus pod for this amazing story. You don't want to go anywhere. Let me catch my breath. Project a course to bring the story home in our BKP time travel choo-choo back to Tampa Station. Please support your grassroots sponsors that support your grassroots baseball podcast show. BRB, Seamheads, I'll see you on the other side of the break. Executive producer of Backwards K Pop. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fish and Hand Cleaner is an all natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun old base spice. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake had a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. 
That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290. To prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning, crawfishhandcleaner.com. The Major League Baseball season wrapped up this week and the playoffs are underway. Here to give us his thoughts is new SNL cast member Marcelo Hernandez. What's up, Marcelo? So are you a baseball fan? Uh, well, Colin, you know, my mom is from Cuba and my dad is from the Dominican Republic. So obviously they're divorced. Um, <laughs> But it also means I love baseball. You know, Latinos dominate baseball. And I'm not saying we're naturally better. I'm just saying we're more fun to watch. I mean, who would you rather watch play baseball? Tanner from Kentucky? Or a guy that they call Papi and no one knows why? <laughs> this guy got so good at his job, everyone started calling him dad. Like Colin. Has anybody here ever called you daddy? I'd, I'd rather not say. <laughs> <laughs> what about... What about... Well, what about, like, Aaron Judge, right? He just hit his 60-second home run, set the AL record. Yeah, I think it's impressive, Colin, but there just wasn't enough emotion for me. He hits his 60-second home run, puts the bat down gently, and then it's a couple of high fives and straight to the dugout. When a Dominican guy hits a home run, Colin, he throws the bat to a different dimension. And once he gets to home plate, he thanks everyone he's ever encountered. He's like, thank you to my mother and my sister and my father and that one guy from the bodega that gave me that papita that one time. Everything changes when they bring out the Dominican guy. The American announcer who's been speaking English the whole game gets an accent all of a sudden. Now this guy named Jeff is like, and now, coming to the plate, from Santo Domingo, Starling Marte. Cue the merengue music. Even the white guys in the crowd are like, Then this guy comes up and he pulls a chain out of nowhere. He tells the pitcher to relax. And then he brings Jesus into it. He's like, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then once he gets to batting calling, it's all hips. Do you feel that, Colin? <laughs> Pretty sure I feel it, yeah. Everyone in the crowd is pregnant by the time he's done back. And the post-game interviews are different, Colin. White guys are so boring. They're always talking about the game. It's like, we had a game plan, and we executed it. But I bet uh, Latin guys do it different. Don't do that, Colin. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> but yes, it is very different. After a baseball game, Latin guys, if they do get a sentence off in English, it's not about the game. The reporter is like, what was going through your head on that 3-2 slider? And then Ramon is like, man, I love Miami, man. The weather, the people, the food is amazing. And if you notice, Colin, they really only speak English until they lose patience. You know, you ask them a loaded question and they go, well, for this season, uh, I think that... Uh, Nah, hay que estar enfocado, porque si no nos enfoca, no vamos a salir bien.
before I broke, we were touching on the crazy baseball life of the natural Eddie Wakers. And let me do a little quick recap here. Eddie is the son of Lithuanian parents. They fell in love while crossing the cold waters of the Atlantic Ocean in passage to their soon-to-be-adopted new homeland of the United States. He was born on September 19, 1919. And once Eddie finds baseball on the sandlots of Cambridge, Massachusetts, he instantly falls in love with the game. At the age of nine, he's a right-handed, bare-handed pitcher. His father is still trying to grasp the concept of this American game. He buys his son a left-handed uh, first baseman's mitt. And instead of complaining or embarrassing his pops, he just learns how to throw left-handed and play first base. He excels on both sides of the ball. He dominates high school both scholastically and athletically. And he eventually earns a spot in the Cubs system. He puts his baseball career on hold. Serves during World War II. And he's not just someone serving some, you know, horseshit post. I mean, he is deep in the shit in New Guinea, the Philippines. And he is part of the ground forces that will eventually inv- invade Japan. After the horrors of war, uh, the war, he would eventually make the Cubs roster. And he is a defensive wizard with a solid stick. Has some productive years on the north side of Chicago before the slumpy Cubbies trade him to filthy. And when Wakers returns to play in Chicago in a Phillies uniform, he is lured into a 19-year-old Ruth Ann Steinhagen's hotel room, and she inexplicably shoots the major leaguer in his stomach. And Eddie assumed that she was someone from his childhood neighborhood in Boston who needed some help. Turned out she was, you know, just one of these obsessed fans. Think, you know, Mark David Chapman, the Beatles superfan, who would eventually murder his hero and John Lennon. That's back in 1980. In her twisted thinking, she could not handle being separated from the now-traded ballplayer whom she had quietly stalked for three years. And from her perspective, if she couldn't have Wakus, no one could have him. Thankfully, she called the front desk after shooting Eddie and told the clerk she had shot a man in her room. The phone call would ironically save his life as the paramedics were able to get him uh, into the hands of a surgeon in time. Ruth Steinhagen is arrested and Eddie is fighting for not only his life, but his baseball career. After spending months convalescing in various hotels, the frail but alive Wakus is greeted at the filthy airport by 500 fans waiting to see this survivor's return. By August, filthy is scuffling. They're losers of five straight games, 10 of their last 13. And at this time, Wakus convalescing in his Philly apartment. He's dying inside watching his comrades struggle. So unannounced, he buys a ticket to Pittsburgh where the team is ready to do battle with the Buccos. He walks into the clubhouse where his shocked teammates were not only shocked by his extreme weight loss, but motivated by his presence. The team would go out that night, choke out Pittsburgh, and they began playing much better baseball. On August 19th, the Phillies have Eddie Winkus night at Shy Park, and he receives a standing ovation from the 20,000 fans in attendance. 
Adorned in a Smilly's gear that appeared very baggy on him, he was presented with a brand new Dodge convertible, a television, golf clubs, a two-week vacation to Atlantic City, as well as other gifts. Dick Sisler, who had replaced Eddie at first base after the incident, he gave a tearful wakes, a gift from the team, a bronze first base club, two silver baseballs mounted on a velvet-covered plaque. And the Phillies would continue their inspiring play for the rest of the 1949 campaign, finishing in third place with 81 wins. The guy says you're going to keep lightning and you're going to crack thunder. You're going to become a very dangerous fighter. When the season was over, Wake has spent November through February in Clearwater Beach, Florida, beginning his long road back to the show, uh, the show under the watchful eye of Phillies trainer Frank Wychick. Wakeus would crank up at, uh, wake up at the crack of dawn and start his day running the dense sandy beaches. His diet was regimented. He began doing isometrics, burpees, sit-ups, push-ups, more running, swimming, bike riding. With every week spent in Clearwater, Eddie is getting stronger. His cardio is better. Wide chick continuously in his ear, urging him to push harder, run faster, faster, faster. At last, Eddie Wakens has never looked better. It's an absolute miracle. He has put in the work, and Eddie Wakens is geared up to do what he was always meant to do, play baseball on the highest level. Eddie would call his four months at Clearwater Beach the worst four months of his career, worse than anything he experienced and New Guinea or the Philippines during the war. But all that hard work would save his once vulnerable baseball career. And while he's getting his house in order down there at Clearwater Beach, he meets the beautiful 20-year-old Carol Weber from Albany, New York, who is vacationing with her family. And they started out with frequent hellos on the beach in the morning. After Eddie's morning uh, workouts, they started dating, and Eddie is beginning to come out of his shell and lose the fear he had developed of people, especially women he did not know. And he began to invest in his comeback at an even higher intensity after meeting her. He's also interested again in the world around him, and with her quiet confidence and faith propping him up, Eddie is ready to meet the challenge, and he is unstoppable. He falls madly in love with Carol, and her belief in him propels him back to the MLB stage for the 1950 baseball season, and he proves his comeback is legit in spring training, and once again, Wakeus finds himself back in the opening day lineup for the Kid Phillies. He's at first base, batting third, and he goes 3-for-5 with a rim as Philby beats the Brooklyn Dodgers 9-1. to He goes on to start all 154 games at first base as the Phillies edge out the Dodgers to win their first NL pennant in 35 years. And Eddie was a key component in that pennant-clinching victory over the Dodgers in Evans Field on the last day of the season when his single in the 10th inning was the catalyst for the Dick Sisler three-run shot to put the fills up. And it would be Eddie, of all people, who would squeeze that final out when Tommy Brown hits a pop-up at the bottom of the 10th. So, 
Let's take a look at those comeback stats on the 1950 Phillies Whiz Kid team. 1950 Eddie Wakis. He's 30 years old. He plays in all 154 games of the season. The only time in his career he would do that. 702 plate appearances. He scores 102 runs, drives in 44. He smashes out 102 hits, two home runs, 32 doubles, five triples, 55 walks, 29 strikeouts, 230 total bases. A 284, 341, 359 slash, and a 700 OPS and an 88 OPS plus. He comes 24th in NL MVP voting and won the Associated Press's Comeback Player of the Year in a landslide. The Wiz Kids' miraculous season it would come to a screeching halt as the Yankees would sweep filthy in the World Series. Wakers had a slash of 267, 353, 333 with a 686 uh, OPS, but he didn't score a drive in any of those games as the Yankees hurlers, they just completely flat out overwhelmed the Wizkids lineup. The long season in which he played every day compounded with the postseason run and wore Wakers down both emotionally, physically. And it's hard for me to say as someone who didn't get to see the 1951 season play out, but from a layman's perspective, you know, and, and that's basically just looking at the stats, it appears both Eddie and the Phillies, they suffered a World Series hangout, hangover in 1951 as the season was disappointing for both the natural and his ball club. The team fell to a sub-500 record, while Wakers could only muster a 250 average, which was uh, his lowest average of his career by 27 points. After the 1951 campaign concluded, Wakus was rumored to be on the trading block. So Eddie worked hard in the offseason. He rebounded with a 289 average, and the Phillies improved to a fourth place finish, 20 games over 500. While Wakus was performing at a high level in the diamond, his psychotic nemesis, Ruth Ann Steinhagen, is declared sane. She's released from the hospital shortly after the season starts. And Eddie expresses his uneasiness with this news to his friend Meyer because she told police after arrest that she would kill him for sure if he ever got married. Which, of course, we all know he did, right? To Carol. So, uh, in February 1952, Phil acquires first baseman Phil Torgerson from the Boston Braves. The slugging corner infielder had already had two seasons of batching over 20 dongs. And it was obvious that Filthy is looking for more pop at that position, even at the expense of quality defensive leather. As a result, Eddie plays only 59 games at first for the 1980, uh, 1952 season. He went 7 for 20 as a pinch hitter. Finished the season with a productive 291 average, but the writing was on the wall, and Wakens was savvy enough to sense it. He becomes disgruntled. He begins to drink very heavily. In late September, with the Bills embroiled in a late-season petty chase, he left the team without permission. Wakers had thought his father was seriously ill, but when he got home to Boston, that was not the case at all. And Phil's owner, Bob Carpenter, was pissed off. And he suspends Eddie for the last week of the game, uh, the last week of games in the season. A humbled Eddie would admit he was in the wrong, and Filthy was justified in suspending him. So, the Phillies mail Wakus a new contract for the 1954 season, which really 
That seems like such an odd way to negotiate a contract, right? I mean, can you imagine if an owner mailed a free agent an offer in today's game? I don't know. That, that just fascinated me. So, they send him the contract offer, and Eddie realizes it has a significant pay cut. So, he sends a message back, NSF. And that means not sufficient funds. The Phillies, they mail him a second offer, and he again rejects it. The third offer he accepts, but when he reports to Clearwater for spring training, he didn't play in one exhibition game. An angry and disgruntled Wakers confronts the owner, and he demands to know why. And Carpenter tells Eddie, Hey, he just sold his contract to the Baltimore Orioles, a new franchise that had moved to the charm after years as the lowly St. Louis Browns. While the blatant middle finger in his face, the 34-year-old Eddie is annoyed by this move, but he figures, what the hell, at least I'll get a chance to play. His main competition at first was Dick Krioski, who was considered a power hitter of his day. And fortunately for Eddie, Krioski broke his wrist at, uh, wrist at spring training when he was hit by a pitch. So, going into the inaugural season for the Orioles, Wakus is the first full-time first baseman for the Orioles. His season starts off as a mitigated failure as he only bats 170 in early May. Uh, manager Jim Dice, Jimmy Dice is forced to replace him with Krioski when he returns from the I.L., and for the year, Eddie rebounded. He eventually he batted 283 by the year's end in 95 games, 349 plate appearances for the seventh place Orioles. He did, however, continue to dazzle with his stellar defense as he finished with a 1,000 fielding percentage in 78 games at first base as an Oriole. Eddie was perfect, and he didn't commit an error all year. Although, Eddie was never one to complain about physical ailments. He began suffering uh, excruciating back, back pain as a result of the adhesion from the surgery to remove the bullet from his body. He begins the 1955 season on the IL. He's played sparingly after that, 38 games by late July. The Orioles had signed the great Paul Richards, the tall Texan, as their manager, and he was intent on changing the culture of the former Browns with a youth movement. On July 25th, the Orioles unconditionally release Eddie Wakis. Five days later, Filthy resigns him due to first baseman Marv Blaylock's struggles. He rejoins his former club in his first games. Uh, in his first games in the Red Pinstripes, he smacks a pinch hit single versus the Reds. And he would go on go on to play on 33 games for Philly that year in the last two months of the season. And he finished with a solid 280 average. On September 20th, Evans Field, Brooklyn, New York. Eddie plays his last Major League game as the Phillies get swept in a doubleheader to the Dodgers. In the fourth inning of Game 1, Eddie drills a shot over the right field fence in Flatbush and on to Bedford Avenue. And after touching home plate, he doffs his cap to his wife, Carol, who is sitting in the stands. In the third inning of the uh, second game, he lines a single to center field off of Roger Craig for the last hit of his amazing baseball career. The Phillies release him in the offseason, and Wakus decides to retire rather than pursue playing anymore. He and his family, which now included a daughter named Ronnie and a son named Teddy, they relocate to Buffalo, New York. And without baseball, you know, grounding him 
anymore. Eddie's drinking it. It begins to worsen. And he falls into a deep, deep depression. And it begins to take a toll on his family life. As Carol takes the kids, moves back to Albany to be near his family. Meanwhile, Eddie is now working for Eastern Freightways. And they transfer transfer him to Camden, New Jersey. In 1961, he's hospitalized at the Veterans Hospital in Philadelphia with a complete nervous breakdown. He would spend several days there, but he never followed up on the counseling. He was prescribed upon his release. And instead of returning to the trucking industry, uh, he takes a job at Wanamaker's Department Store in Filthy. In 1963, Wakis moves to Waltham, Massachusetts to live with his sister Stella, and he is selling sporting goods for the Grover Cronin Department Store. Shortly thereafter, he leaves his sister's home. He moves into uh, a second floor of a home on Fayette Street, close to Harvard University, and his hometown of Cambridge, Massachusetts. He lived there for the rest of his life, pretty much in quiet solitude. He shied away from human contact with former teammates or his schoolboy chums. He enjoyed talking baseball with the neighborhood fellows, but for the most part, he became a recluse hermit. In June of 1969, he returns to Shy Park, where he was honored at a Phillies game as the best first baseman in franchise history. Proving to Eddie one thing, the love affair between Philadelphia and that 1950 Wiz kids, it doesn't die quickly. In the fall of 1971, he shatters his hip after a nasty fall he suffers, cleaning his second-story uh, storm windows. Eddie walked with a limp and a cane that summer, and he's actually running a baseball camp for Ted Williams, who was another admirer of Wakis. Um, the player and the man. Wakens leaves the kids and the camp early because of the pain. Within days of returning home, he enters the VA hospital in Jamaica Plain with pneumonia, esophageal cancer due to the years of puffing on Benson and Hedges after baseball. He would never leave the hospital. And on September 16th, 1972, Eddie Wakens dies at the age of 53. And Wakens lived a rough life. He was a solid baseball player whose story has been lost in the sands of time. Thank God for this show. This is a life and career that should never be forgotten. His drinking, depression, anxiety, and would probably, you know, be diagnosed as shell shock today. Or, you know, as the politically soft and correct language of today, post-traumatic stress disorder. So, before I twist this joint up, call it a day. Let's take a look at the stats by the natural, Eddie Stephen Wakens. Okay, what do we got here? He batted left, taught himself to throw left-handed, born September 4th, 1919, died September 16th, 1972, at the age of 53. He is buried in Cambridge Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He attended Boston College University on Chestnut Hill. Played Major League Ball for 11 years with the Cubs, Phillies, and Orioles. A career of 14.4 wins above replacement. 1,140 games played. 4,681 plate appearances. 528 runs scored. 1,214 hits. 215 doubles. 44 triples. 24 career home runs. 373 RBI. 28 stolen bases, 21 times caught, 204 strikeouts, and uh, 372 walks, 
1,589 total bases and an impressive 285, 344, 374 slash, a 718 OPS, and a 96 OPS plus. Two-time All-Star in 1948, and the year he was shot in 1949. His 304 average in 1946 was the sixth best NL average that year. He had two seasons where he was in the top ten in NL hits, doubles, and runs scored. In 1950, he strikes out an average of once every 22.1 at-bats, and in 1952, once in every 21.7 at-bats. Both times setting the NL benchmark those respective years. In 1950, his 1,387 putouts at first base leads the National League. And if you would like to compare him, compare him to a player or two statistically, may I recommend former disgraced White Sox first baseman Chick Gandel or by modern standards, former tribe Pat Tabler. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, seamheads of all ages, this is the story of Eddie Wakis, the natural. And if I'm being honest, folks, I never knew this story before a couple weeks ago. Everyone I had spoken to in the past few weeks had never heard of this story. I mean, how is this possible? How do the majority of baseball fans not know this story? Myself included, before I did the research. I love this story. It has everything. A growing hero taken down from his pedestal at the hands of a psycho band. The miraculous comeback. He falls in love and it enables him to mount his return. Which again, is nothing short of miraculous. It has all the elements of a great baseball tragedy. And if I'm being honest... It's so fucking Philly tough. I mean, growing up two hours from, uh, you know, under two hours from Philly, I've gone there often, and I love that city. It's a fighter city. I mean, for real, whenever I went there, I, I just had the urge to slap somebody to the lips. It, it, it's blue-collar tough. A lot of similarities between Baltimore and Philly. I love the people there. I love the toughness, and I love the spirit, and Wankus surely fits that mode. Backwards K Pod is available on all podcast platforms wherever you enjoy your shows, or you can leap on over to DiamondSnakeJake.Podbean.com to hear any of the near 100 shows we have dropped here at BKP. I will never charge you for the baseball content here at Backwards K Pod. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay to play subscriptions. I'm going to do this the old fashioned way. And Trust you guys to share my shows. I'm going to roll up my sleeves, do the work, and come through every Tuesday. I'm going to roll through your baseball universe with that free baseball smoke. You don't want that smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like Henry Aaron, baby, the hammer. So, with the Eddie Winkins bonus show getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, and with a backwards K next to it in the books... I now turn my undivided attention to our baseball hydra as I chop the head off that beast only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. On Tuesday, I'm going to dive into the waters of the Chesapeake and find out everything I can about Mr. Oreo Brooks Robinson. 
obviously, I've had this circle for a while, folks. I can't wait to speak on my hero, who is still beloved in the charm after all these years. But look, y'all know the deal, right? That's another story for another pod here at Backwards K Pod. Where we collect ball players and their stories. You can contact the show at our email address, backwardskpod at gmail.com. Check us out on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal line is at jrobbie1. That's J R O B B I E and the number one. Our YouTube channel is Backwards K Pod. And you can always find him, uh, find me hanging out with the fans at our private Facebook group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Answer the questions. Come on in. Open your kimonos. We don't judge, folks. Go crazy. Stars? Comments? Yeah, whatever. Hook that up. I'm going to make like a newborn and head out. I feel like I accomplished my goals on this one. So with that being said... I'm just going to end it here. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch with their noses in the phones, looking bored AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Limbrin said in our one-on-one sparring session last year in the dojo, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you in a couple days with Brooksy, you cement freaks. Peace.